I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 47 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus returns to his humble origins of Nazareth, he is met not with celebratory acceptance, but with skepticism and ultimately rejection. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the author is consistently drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus divides and upsets and offends. And yet, rejection to the gospel is best met not with despair, but with hope. All right, let's get started. Who recognizes this man? Anybody? Jim Henson, right. It's Jim Henson. Jim Henson. I've mentioned him before. He's one of my uh, creative heroes. In fact, fun fact, actually, my son Beck's middle name is Henson because of this guy. Now, if I asked you to describe... What it is that Jim Henson is known for, what would you say? Muppets. The Muppets, sure. Or maybe Sesame Street is a close second featuring Jim Henson's Muppets. And that'd be fair. He's mostly remembered for the lasting impact of those two things, the Muppets and the Muppets on Sesame Street, and they're wonderful things. But my favorite Jim Henson work is easily a film called The Dark Crystal, which is not Sesame Street. Uh, Oh, right, yeah. See, The Dark Crystal was, and still is, the only live-action feature film created entirely with sophisticated creature puppetry. It's dark, it's scary, it's humorless, it's very strange, and Henson actually wanted it to be even weirder. Early cuts of the movie featured almost all of the dialogue in an alien language designed by the filmmakers, (laughs) until the producer said, you have got to put some English in this thing. So... When The Dark Crystal was released in 1982, audiences were not into it. It was poorly received, poorly reviewed. It was a commercial failure at the box office. And the negative feedback took mostly the same basic shape, which was, isn't this the Muppets guy? I thought this was going to be fun. I thought this was going to be funny. I thought this was going to be a family fantasy movie. Where's Kermit? Where are Bert and Ernie? Where are the songs and the dancing and the light-hearted comical shenanigans? And Henson was devastated. This had been his passion project, his truest labor of love. He'd hoped to be, uh, he had hoped to be recognized as an auteur, as a creative pioneer, an experimental filmmaker. Today, he is recognized as those things. The Dark Crystal enjoys an enduring legacy. It's studied and screened in theaters and events. The puppet characters uh, travel around on display in museum exhibitions. I've gone and seen them. They're novels and comic books and podcasts and board games even for some reason. There's a, a prequel series will premiere on Netflix this year. And people like me name their kids Henson, you know, as a result of it. But that wasn't the case then. So now, with uh, you know, hindsight, we say things like, oh man, it was unappreciated in its time. He was un- unappreciated in his time. The people right there in the moment, the people experiencing an important breakthrough in art and film firsthand, they scorned it. They did not get it. They said, isn't this the Muppets guy? Give us a break. And you could tell the story about any number of noteworthy figures who had a lasting impact on either art or culture or significant movements. Pablo Picasso died poor and unrecognized. Uh, the Catholic Church condemned Galileo for suggesting that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. Um, even civil rights activists uh, hated Martin Luther King Jr.'s position on the Vietnam War, which he famously and publicly objected. Uh, objected to. Familiarity with a person or with a way things should be done often solidifies a person's understanding of someone or something or, and their expectations of that person or of that idea freeze in place. 
And if that someone or something deviates from our understanding and our expectations, then we are not happy. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you're just joining us, we are working our way, slowly but surely, through a biography written in the first century, documenting the life, the work, the teachings of history's most controversial figure, Jesus of Nazareth. See, at Van City, which is where you are right now, we understand ourselves as apprentices of Jesus. That's the term we like to use quite a bit. It's just another translation of that word uh, disciple, disciples of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus. He is the teacher, in other words. He is the master, and we are his students, his apprentices. And as his students, we live in the ongoing pursuit of three simple goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Now, given this approach, it matters big time that we understand who Jesus is, what he taught, what he said, what he did, and why. So we have some studying to do because it's complicated. You know, you take this biography, for example, from which we're about to read. It was written some 2,000 years ago on a different continent in a different language into a different culture with very different paradigms and worldviews and concerns. And yet, as long as this book has been read, it has been recognized as a source of timeless truth and of historical data, and it is one of the primary means by which anyone can study and learn and know about Jesus. So it wasn't written to us in the specific sense, but it's here for us. But it takes a bit of work to understand. We take that work very seriously, which is probably why it's taken us two years and almost 50 teachings just to get to chapter 13. But hey, we're doing it. We're doing the best we can. So all that to say, you guys ready? Great, let's do some work. Let's read the conclusion of Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 53. <clears throat> Matthew 13, 53 says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. So pause for a minute. See, this is why it takes so long. Um, <laughs> this means that we're moving on from a very long and detailed sequence of narratives that preceded this one. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you missed it. Jesus was arguing with the religious leaders. He stirred up all kinds of trouble. He called them a bunch of snakes. He offended his own family members. Then he taught some big crowds using only riddle-like teachings called parables. So then Matthew writes, we're transitioning to a brand new scene. Verse 54 Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, and in his own home, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, this story begins a collection of scenes that scholars call the five receptions. It begins here in Nazareth. We're going to move on from there to his reception from Herod, who was a ruler at the time. You get the disciples, specifically after that, Peter, and then finally his reception in Gennesaret. Now, we'll dissect each of them as we go, and we'll see that four of these five receptions are ambivalent. 
which is really interesting because previously Matthew has been telling exciting, incredible, inspiring stories. Jesus reaching those on the margins of society and inviting them into God's kingdom. Jesus valuing the overlooked and the oppressed. There's been miraculous healing. There's been casting out demons, even resuscitating dead people, even forgiving sins. And then controversy starts to set in. Jesus stirs up trouble. Accusations are lobbied at Jesus. And now Matthew has begun to balance all that inspiring, beautiful stuff with a very painful truth. We've seen what Jesus says and what he does. So now let's see how people will respond. And the answer is that genuine faith, what Jesus is after, genuine faith and discipleship is rare and complicated. So take tonight's story, for example, rejection in Nazareth. Jesus shows up. He teaches in the synagogue as per his typical approach. And at first, people are excited. In fact, they were amazed, the text says. And that word amazed is explacio in Greek. It infers not just excitement, but admiration. They're really into it. And then Matthew weaves in this jarring twist. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, the people of Nazareth ask? And then they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? And this is a twofold discrediting, all of a sudden, of that surge of admiration that Jesus' presence uh, evoked in the synagogue. How did he learn to teach like this, they're saying? Where did he get all this power? Now, ancient Israel had its own educational system, and these people would have, at this point, spent some three decades with Jesus. They knew well enough that he had not received a higher education. He worked with his dad, Joseph. Uh, What the heck, when the heck did he sneak off to school during all that time? We know exactly what he was doing. He was here. He was working with his dad. And that word typically translated as carpenter is the Greek word tecton, which really just means a craftsman. We used to think pretty widely that Jesus had learned uh, carpentry or woodworking from his dad Joseph, but recent studies have revealed a relative scarcity of trees and wood in Nazareth. Go figure. Homes in Nazareth were actually carved from stone. The next city over, Sephora, was a hub of stone masonry. So today, scholars believe that tectons in Nazareth would have been stone masons. So there you go. Fun fact. We think Jesus was likely a stonemason. Fun tidbit for you this evening. The point is, the people are saying, this dude's a stonemason, and he was just here. <laughs> He's not of noble birth. He's got no advanced education whatsoever. And Matthew records it as this near instantaneous transition. Jesus' wisdom and power on full display. And notice, no one is denying either. In fact, they acknowledge, where did he get all this wisdom? Where did he get these powers? They admit that he has both, but they refuse to take them seriously. In fact, the text says that they took offense. And it literally means they refuse to believe in him. And what's funny about all this is that the doubts of the crowd are more or less true in the technical sense. We know that Jesus is not Joseph's biological son, but he was his son in the practical sense. His mom is Mary. He does have brothers and sisters. So Matthew is highlighting again and again that Jesus is the type of king no one was expecting. One scholar said it like this, Jesus seems at first to be special, perhaps even messianic or the Messiah, but people with fathers like the carpenter, mothers like Mary, brothers and sisters like the people they know, cannot be messiahs. He is too much like them to be the transcendent one. One of the core aspects of Jesus' identity, something so beautiful, so incredible, is here to Jesus' discredit, and that's that he's too human. 
And that kind of thing still happens all the time. In fact, down throughout church history, all sorts of heretical groups formed out of people who could not reconcile the fact that Jesus was human, the humanity of Jesus. In fact, I remember years ago sitting in a seminary class, um, and we were working our way through Matthew and through, I think in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, and one of our professors mentioned that it was likely that Jesus hadn't literally delivered the message with the exact chronology of Matthew's account, but these were indeed Jesus' most core teachings, and Matthew creatively wove them together in this scene to best serve his authorial purposes, which is why the teachings appear in a kind of different order in different Gospels. And one student spoke up all of a sudden and said, wait a minute, so you're saying that it did not literally really happen word for word exactly as this account details in this order. And our professor reminded him that like, well, ancient historians don't think of history that way. They don't write that way. Matthew, he isn't making anything up. He didn't manufacture any stories. He isn't washing them out. He's just composing his own account of true historical data with creative freedom granted him by the Holy Spirit. And this student was so frustrated, he threw his hands up and he's like, well, then how can anyone believe any of the Bible? The whole thing has to go out the window. That God, as, as he, in his divinity, breathed out the scriptures, would allow his human authors their own personalities, their own biases, their own agendas. It was just too much for this gentleman to consider. Too human, in other words. Just as Jesus' hometown cannot handle knowing his origins, this classmate of mine couldn't handle that the Bible was inspired by God, but written by humans. It's too human, he said. It's below God. The scholar I mentioned goes on to say of tonight's text, this story teaches us to weigh realities. It teaches that Jesus is not less messianic for being human, nor is he less divine for coming from ordinary stock. It is the glory of God to stoop. This story teaches us to hold Jesus' deity in his humanity. Of course, Nazareth at the time couldn't see it. Nor could Jesus' own family. Look at the way Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Some of your translations say household, as in they took offense at him. Um, prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Or some translations even say a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. Now, if you think a few stories back, Matthew has already inferred that Jesus' family is kind of on the fence with him and his role and exactly what he's doing. When Jesus is inside teaching eager students, his family is standing outside trying to get him out of there. And another biography of Jesus written by a gentleman called John actually just spells it out plainly. He writes, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. So they're challenging him in the scene, and then John adds to it, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. That's important for our story tonight, so remember that for later. But this story in Matthew's text, it ends with this haunting admission. He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So, wait, faith is a prerequisite for miracles? And the answer is, well, yes and no. The New Testament makes a very clear and ongoing connection between true faith and the power with which the Holy Spirit is free to move and to work and to heal. But, and please, please hear me on this, the Bible does not paint a picture 
of a God who is standing by, ready to do miracles, but oh, you couldn't quite get your faith up to level 10. Close, level 9, but no, no miracles for you today. You were close, but no miracles for you today. Not enough faith. It's not like the Polar Express where you just sort of, you know, grit it out and say, I believe, I believe, oh my God, you know, then. Um, And yet, this strange understanding, the idea that you have to somehow level your faith meter up to get something done in prayer, um, it's depressingly pervasive amongst disciples of Jesus who would sincerely like to see the Spirit move. And they sigh before an unanswered prayer thinking, I guess we just didn't believe hard enough. Or maybe they don't actually think that consciously, but somewhere deep down, that's actually what they believe. And I sympathize, I do. For one reason or another, it's actually easy to slip into that assumption. The problem is that throughout the Bible, God does all kinds of miraculous things without requiring faith, and in some cases, without requiring even basic belief. In my own life, I've seen the Spirit move in power when I've been faithless myself, or the person for whom I was praying had no faith or no belief of any kind. The problem with the whole faith requirement approach to prayer is that it's a contractual understanding of how God works rather than a relational understanding of how God works, as if God always and only operates with a, you keep your side of the deal, I'll keep my side of the deal approach to miracles and prayers. Is that how God works? No, absolutely not. God is overwhelmingly and overtly depicted throughout the entire Bible as the only one willing to lovingly keep covenant, regardless of how often or how severely His covenant partners break covenant. God is not contractual. He is relational. And in a dynamic relationship, faith and belief, they certainly factor. It's part of why stuff happens, the way we pray, what happens as a result. But they are not black and white scales that quantifiably measure out the possibility of miracles. Enough faith, oh, miracle. Sorry, not enough faith, no miracle. So there are times when we are hopeless and faithless, and God moves anyway. In power, people get healed, God speaks, stuff happens. And then there are times when we're upright and we're excited, but we falter in faith and we quench God's spirit and nothing happens. So as always, relationships are complicated, in other words. In tonight's text, I think this has more to do with Jesus' idea of, quite frankly, what's worth it so to speak, what's worth the effort. In his commentary on Matthew, R.T. France writes this, the problem is not so much doubt over Jesus' ability to carry out any specific healing as it is skepticism as to his whole image as a miracle-working man of God. So it's not just doubt, like, oh, he can't even do stuff. These people don't even believe Jesus is someone worth listening to. They refuse to believe in him. So honestly, How much work are you supposed to put into a group like that? Remember in Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Even further back in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught this, even stronger language. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Meaning, Jesus is constantly preparing his disciples for the inevitability of rejection. And he places himself in a long tradition of Israel's prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who each brought urgent messages from God himself only to be rejected by those intended to receive it. And this has been happening throughout the entire story of the Bible. Now it's happening to Jesus. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes this, 
He performs only a few deeds of power in his hometown because any deeds of power would only lead to further misunderstanding and rejection. Matthew makes it clear that it is Jesus' fate to be misunderstood and rejected. As his apprentices, the same is true of you and me. In fact, Jesus has already said in no uncertain terms just a few chapters back, it's one of my favorite lines from Jesus, you will be hated by everyone because of me. In John's gospel, he writes, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. (laughs) Uh, I was hated before it was cool, is what Jesus is saying. (laughs) And there's another in John 16, in this world, this is a promise from Jesus, you will have trouble. Great news, huh? Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the end. But before we end, I want us to wrestle with two ideas from tonight's text, one on the surface and one kind of a ways beneath, the idea of rejection and the idea of hope. Again and again, Matthew highlights both the power of Jesus' message and the inevitability that it will be met with rejection. And it's not just Jesus' teaching. It's his personhood. It's his way of life. It's even the nature of his humanity, where he comes from, the fact that he's not who people thought he would be. People just won't have it. Uh, Just this week, Cameron was telling me about the way someone close to him had declared the topic of Jesus, the Bible, all of that, officially off-limits in their relational conversation. Don't bring it up. Don't discuss it with me. I do not want to hear about it from you ever again. Now, what's Cam supposed to do in this situation? No, the gospel will be heard and like chase this person around screaming Bible verses at them. And think like I'm making a joke out of it, but that kind of rejection can be devastating, especially when it's someone really close to you. Um, It can be painful. It can be confusing. What the heck am I supposed to do with this? But really, it shouldn't come as a surprise. Before American evangelicalism toppled under the weight of its own hypocrisy, it ran a long and aggressive campaign to, quote, take America back for God, if you remember that, from a decade or so ago or more. And there were things like the culture wars, whatever the heck that was, these hostile battles against anything and everything in the culture that offended the evangelical sensibility, from holiday well-wishing to, you know, like Starbucks cups, uh, to whether or not one prayed or did not pray before a NASCAR race or a football game. So people are like, I'm not shopping at places that say happy holidays or getting up in arms about what the heck a major corporate coffee chain puts on a cup. And it's like, it's bad anyway. Who cares? Like, and it's all just so, so utterly ridiculous that it's so easy to like punch holes in it and, you know, make jokes about it. Um, but the bottom line is like you can't coerce Christian behavior You can't legislate the kingdom. You can't legislate Christian values. When the state or the host culture, what what the state and the host culture does can't possibly shape the church or vice versa. The bigger, more fundamental argument was always disciples of Jesus should expect rejection. They should not fight for dominance. And compelled by political fervor, not discipleship, Some stand and say, we're being persecuted, our our values are under attack, but they're not, not really. And even if they were, there's no actual threat because no one can force a disciple of Jesus to abandon their rabbi. It can't be done. They've tried in all manner of ways for hundreds of years, and disciples of Jesus simply say, nope, we'll die first. And they do, often, and to this very day. But holiday greetings and trick-or-treating and prayer removed from public schools, those are not rejections. That's not persecution. The more you read the Gospels, the more you see the painful juxtaposition of the Gospels' urgency and its divisiveness. 
meaning it must be shared. The story of God's plan to rescue a broken world in and through Jesus of Nazareth is hope. It's good news. It's a new reality breaking into the old one as we knew it. It changes life in the here and now, every aspect of it, not just in the future. It's a new way to be human. It's a new humanity. It's a new family. It's also hope for the future, for the age to come, the renewal of all things, the eradication of evil and injustice, the undoing of sin and suffering and death. That is good news. But it comes at a cost. That cost might be the complete inversion of one's value system, the redirection of one's entire life, the rethinking and rearranging of of what's true and what is false in light of Jesus' teachings. It might be a new understanding of something like money or what it means to be comfortable and secure, or it might be a new understanding of love and sexuality or peace and justice or what it means to be a human being. It might mean leaving behind one's love for a career or a money or an image or a relationship or several of those things. So yes, it is good news, but it is costly good news. And thus, it is divisive good news. So to end tonight, there's two things I want you to consider as you grapple with the inevitability of rejection for the sake of Jesus. The first is that not all rejection is for the sake of Jesus, even if it seems spiritual. It could just be because you're wrong. Of course, we all know the kinds of heinous things for which alleged Christians often chalk up to persecution or rejection. Um, I was just reading recently about um, an ongoing case Last year, a Michigan couple was charged with felony murder and first-degree child abuse when their newborn died of malnutrition, and the father claimed that he was persecuted or he was jailed because he was being persecuted for his faith, telling a reporter from prison, you will answer to God for everything said against me. That's not persecution. That's a murder charge. And of course, that's an over-the-top example. Most of us are more familiar with something less extreme. So here's an example I cooked up from my own life. There are some people in my extended family back in Georgia. It's okay, they'll never hear this. Um, (laughs) I don't even think they know we're here. Um, They have a history of alienating everyone within the Porter family tree because no one is Christian enough for them. So they have no relational equity whatsoever with anyone. They drop in every year or so from far away. They do some moral recon (laughs) on people, and then they say, we need to have a talk. They sit them down, and uh, they're deeply concerned with the sin in someone's life. And needless to say, they've earned a pretty lousy reputation pretty quickly. No one wants to hear from them. It's always dreaded, like, oh, my gosh, they're in town. It's coming. Yep, there it is. We need to have a talk. Um, And what's interesting is that every time I hear a new incident of these yahoos showing up to talk to somebody, most of the time they're technically right. Like so-and-so does drink too much, or so-and-so's family is really broken, or so-and-so frankly does need to go to church. But they're not being rejected for being right. They're being rejected because they're jerks. (laughs) And don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that No disciple of Jesus ever under any circumstance holds another disciple accountable for their actions. Contrary to the popular opinion, especially um, amongst uh, a younger generation and the here and now, the whole like, just love people. Don't, Don't judge them. Just lead by, just love people or be Jesus to them, whatever that means. When I hear that, I think, okay, Jesus in which scenario? When he's gentle and subtle and kind or when he's out in front of crowds calling people snakes? And saying to his own friend, get behind me, Satan, you know, stuff like that. I'll be Jesus to them. Um, (laughs) 
So is Jesus' approach to destructive evil simply sitting back and saying nothing? No, no. You get that impression pretty clearly early on. But, and please listen, there is a time and a place to go to someone in loving, Holy Spirit-led concern, with humility, having wrestled with your own garbage, and to voice that concern in loving kindness, graciousness, patience for their story, relational equity, taking time to actually walk with them in the, in the thick of things. And even then, you may face rejection. You may even face rejection for embodying the lifestyle of Jesus. But when you make it your business to, in the language of the Scriptures, lead a quiet life, to love and care for the people in your life, your community, with self-sacrificial humility, you typically reduce the odds of hostile rejection at least a little bit. So not all rejection is for the sake of the gospel. And secondly, to end, the answer to rejection is not hostility, And it's not fatalism, meaning don't get angry about it and don't give up. The answer to rejection is resilient hope. So look at tonight's story. We have two examples in Matthew's biography of Jesus so far of Jesus' own family, immediate family, rejecting him, his own brothers, his own mother. But then something changed. Now today there's obviously a spectrum of belief when it comes to the theology of Mary, the mother of Jesus, but... All disciples of Jesus, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or otherwise, agree that she is among the most noteworthy heroes of the biblical story. She was a poor peasant teenager, a nobody, a woman in a time where women were even more devalued than they often are still today. She was chosen by God with the honor of knowing Jesus, the king of the universe, in a way no one else could ever know him, to be his mother, to actually carry Jesus in her womb. She sat at his feet when he died, and she saw him with her own eyes raised from the dead. She was a strong and courageous woman who continued to play a role in the growth of the church as the story went on and even became a mother figure to the early disciples of Jesus. Now, of course, you can't see any of that in tonight's story, but now that we know, the entire passage is pregnant with hope that this is not where Mary's story ends. And Jesus' siblings, remember that line from John's gospel? Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Tonight's story even mentions James and Judas, who's also called Jude by name. They did not believe in him. But then something changed. James and Jude went on to co-author the New Testament, which is a pretty big deal. They were honored by having their books bear their names in the history of the church forever. So, Rejection is an inevitability, but rejection isn't always the end of the story. When we confront it, and we will, we don't shout, we don't bow up in pride or self-defense, but we also don't concede or forfeit or abandon the gospel. So when you face rejection, the kind that I was talking about that Cam uh, is facing right now when, when it's someone close to you, when you have no idea what to do, or when it hurts, when it's confusing, you grieve and you mourn. And you fan the little resilient flame of hope. Maybe that person in your life or in your family will be like Mary or like James or like Jude. As for you, the ending to your story in the ultimate sense, in the broad sense, is written. The season of rejection ends on a coming day in total victory. 
And it's not for the sake of personal pride. It's not, certainly not for the sake of your vindication, but for the sake of Jesus' kingship, which is once scorned, moving out across every square inch of the universe forever. So wherever you find yourself tonight, confronting rejection or anticipating rejection, grieving it, or celebrating a hope that did give way to victory already, the prayer is really the same, that we would follow our rabbi well, that we would allow him to teach us to lay down pride just as we lay down defeat and face rejection well. Earlier I read from John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but of course many of you already know the entire verse says a bit more, I have told you those, these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, not you might, you will have trouble, but take heart, I, Jesus, have overcome the world. So with that in mind, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.